0: All right. Well, um, as you can probably or maybe surmise, um, Chris was supposed to be up here this morning, but he went and got sick, so here I am this morning. So, uh, yeah. Always love that last minute call, right? Or text. It's great. Yeah. No, it's good. Um, It just reminds me that, you know, weakness is a good thing (laughs) in the Christian life. Yeah. Good to be to feel your need of the Lord. All right, so what we're going to do is something that uh, <laughs> maybe the kids are tired of it now, but the topic we've been doing with the youth for the past couple weeks is um, really the spiritual world. Uh, that's the topic, or that's the name that I chose for our youth group topic, but the spiritual world of existence, meaning it's not just human beings out there, right? There are other creatures, other other beings out there besides just us, and we sometimes forget about them. Uh, what I mean is what's, you know, commonly called angels, demons, Satan, God himself. Hopefully we don't, we don't forget about the ultimate <laughs> spiritual being, God. But um, this, is, this is a topic that I feel and felt um, when I chose the topic for the youth that is sort of neglected um, considering the amount of biblical data that's there. And even, even I myself, as I went through and was just, Looking up the word "angel" uh, in the in the in the Bible and looking at a visual um, table of how many times that word, not not counting for any of the synonyms, sons of God, spirits, etc., but just angel or angels is used. It's a lot. It's um it's in most books of the Bible and actually in the New Testament. You know, most books in the Bible and in, in, uh, in the New Testament are replete with um, mentions of the word angel, or that's not even counting demons or any other usages, but. This is a thoroughly, uh, the Bible presents us with a thoroughly supernatural worldview. And that shouldn't surprise people who say we know and love God, right? But we sometimes sort of, I don't know, functionally forget about the fact that, yeah, there's God in us, but there's also more than God in us, right? There's also angels. There's also demons. There's also Satan. Um, these These are creatures that we should not be ignorant of because the Bible tells us not to be ignorant of, especially Satan himself. So um, in, in youth group, we've been talking more generally, generally about the spiritual world, so to speak. But what I want to do this morning is zero in on Ephesians 6, not surprisingly, one of the main kind of flagship uh, passages that deal with especially the uh, demonic side, the evil side of uh, beings that are out there. Um, and Paul has uh, a lot to, to say about this, obviously, um, in all of his writings, but he zeroes in here at the end of, end of Ephesians to really sort of put a fine point on the fact that um, we, we, neglect, we neglect thinking about and being prepared for Satan and his minions to our own peril, essentially, right? That we have to think about these beings because they think about us, <laughs> essentially, right? And we would be fools, uh, ultimately, to not think about and consider and be prepared for... Uh, the onslaught of darkness and Satan, um, and to realize, realize that God has made us ready for this, this battle. So why don't we pray um, again briefly, and we're going to look at Ephesians 6, 10, and as far as I feel like I can get this morning. So, Lord, I uh, pray to you again that you would uh, just give us all understanding of your word, give me the ability to articulate clearly what it means, um, but open our hearts to be um, hearers, and not merely hearers, but doers of your word. And uh, Lord, help us to really just um, be encouraged that there are all of these um, dark forces, forces that assail us daily, uh, yet your Christ is exalted above the heavens. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. All right, let's read the passage. <clears throat> so Ephesians 6, we're going to read verses 10 through 20. Let's see here, let me get back to my screen. Okay. Paul says, our rights. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, or in all circumstances, taking up the shield of faith with which you are able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known the, with boldness the mystery of the Gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I might speak boldly as I ought to speak. What a great passage! So the book of Ephesians, where's Paul when he's writing this book? Well, he just kind of told us in this last little, you know, couple verses we read. Paul is in prison. Um, As we recall, the the prison epistles are Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians. Paul's in prison writing these letters. We can kind of forget that sometimes, and we can forget that what a a great thing that is that Paul was in prison, because we wouldn't get these letters, right? Paul probably wouldn't have the, the time or the mental resources to sit down and write. And Ephesians, or Philippians or Colossians. So, yeah, when you're in, when you're in dire straits, um, when you are in a bad way in your life, it's kind of encouragement. God's doing stuff. He's making opportunities for us to do maybe things that are not what we planned to do or we wanted to do, but different things, right? Um, so just a, a side note there, but Paul's writing this letter from prison. And uh, there's a lot of debate about, you know, is, is Paul actually writing to Ephesians, or, uh, to Ephesus specifically? There's some textual data there that sort of not not conclusive as to whether or not this letter is a circular letter that goes around to all the churches in an area or specifically just to Ephesians or it just goes to Ephesians first and then it circulates around to other churches. Uh, We won't get into all that, but needless to say, this letter um, is very broad in its scope. Um, It's sort of like a Romans in the sense that um, you don't have a lot of, uh, you know, what's called mirror reading that you have to do where you're trying to figure out what is, what is Paul addressing here? You know, there, there's certainly questions that people have asked him. He's, he's answering those questions, or there are things going on specifically in a church like Corinth, and he's trying to figure out, you're trying to figure out what he's, what's he really getting at here? That's not really the case in, in Ephesians. Um, it's very general. It's like Paul's just getting almost like a, man, I get, I get to write about just the things I want to write about for once. You know, I don't have the, the topic set for me by all these issues I'm having to deal with. So it's, it's different in that sense, a different kind of, kind of a letter. And I think for that reason, Paul can sort of broaden the palette a bit more than some other letters he writes, um, which we will, we will see. Um, but just starting in the text, get into the text here. Again, Paul, verse 10, he says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in, and in the strength of his might. <clears throat> Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, you may have in the NASB or maybe some other translation, stand firm. Firm is not there in the text, it just says stand, it's just the word for stand, so stand. Um, Of course it means firm, it doesn't mean stand like halfway, but it's just stand. Um, Why is Paul writing this? Well, he's writing that Christ followers us, the Ephesians, the churches who read this letter, anybody who reads the letter, if you're a Christ follower, you're called to be strong, right? We're not supposed to be weaklings. We're not supposed to be those who are tossed about to and fro by winds and waves of of doctrine, right? False doctrine. We're supposed to be stable people, stable in the gospel. But notice it's not just, Paul doesn't just say be strong and then go on from there. He says be strong in the Lord, right? This This is not a moral improvement program. This is not a you know, a self-empowerment uh, program. That's not what Christianity is. We know that. But the nature of of the Christian life is that we forget that, don't we, right? We easily drift back, all of us do, into self-reliance. Um, we drift into, you know, just looking at ourselves too much. We forget Christ is there, you know, at the right hand of the Father. He's there, right? We forget this. And so we need reminders. We need the word coming again and again, telling us, you know what? You need to be strong, but you need to be strong not in and of yourself, because there's nothing there in and of ourselves, right? But in the Lord. Well, who is the Lord? The Lord is the Lord Jesus. Uh, almost every time, if not every time, I would say every time. When Paul uses the word kurios in the, in the Greek, it's Jesus he's referring to, Lord. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not God the Father, it's Jesus. So he's saying we need to be strong, and we're strong in Jesus, in Christ himself. Um, it's, a, it's an imperative in the Greek, it's a command to be strong, but it's actually in the passive. So it's, it's, be, it's to be strong in the Lord, but the Lord is the one who's doing this in us. It's, it's a divine passive. God is the one who's doing this in us. So there's a, there's a passive idea of God, God doing it to us, making us strong, right? But an, a commandment to be strong, to avail ourselves of what God has provided for us. The strength is found outside of our native abilities or any power we can muster. Um, Therefore, we have to be strong in the Lord and not in and of ourselves. Um, Which made me think of Jesus in, in John 15 when he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. And then he puts the nail in the coffin, right? For apart from me, you can do nothing, right? We can't do anything apart from Jesus, we easily convince ourselves that we don't need the Lord, right? I mean, let's be honest. Our prayer life reflects that. My prayer life reflects that. To the degree that I'm prayerless, it shows I think that I don't need the Lord, that I have a power source in and of myself, and that I don't need God to step in at every moment of every day and be at work in me and through me. And same for you, and it's just not true. <laughs> Our power source is all outside of ourselves. If you see a Christian strong in faith, it's because the Lord is at work in him, right? Paul says, you know, that he has this messenger from Satan to torment him because he went, you know, either he was in the third heavens or he wasn't, he doesn't know it's a vision or if he was there, he doesn't know, 2 Corinthians 11. But he says he was given this messenger from Satan, why? To remind him that he doesn't need to boast or be puffed up in any way, but to be reminded that when he's weak, then he's strong. You know, he prayed the Lord would take away this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. The Lord doesn't do it. The Lord likes to keep us weak. Why? Because that's how we're strong. <laughs> See what I'm saying? If we're, if we're strong in ourselves, then we're weak. If we're weak um, in ourselves, then we're strong as long as we're casting ourselves on Christ and drawing power from him specifically. Apart from us, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We just need to remember, remember that text often. But Paul, as he mentions the word strength here, this is not the first time he's talked about strength. Strength is mentioned quite a bit in, a bit in Ephesians. I just want to read one passage uh, in chapter 1. Uh, if you want to turn over there, you can, but Ephesians 1, I'm going to read about five verses here. Paul prays at the beginning of his, toward the beginning of his, of his letter, "'I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened "'so that you will know what is the hope of his calling.'" what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is, the, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. So Paul is stressing here that Christ is no longer in a state of, of humility, right? Hebrews talks about he was made for how long? A little while lower than the angels, right? But where is he now? He's above the heavens. He's at the right hand of God, right? This is where Christ is. Christ has, and we have to have this vision of Christ. That's why the book of Revelation is so key, because if we have a small vision of Christ, that's no vision of Christ, it's not who Christ is. To see Christ as small, small is not to see him at all. Christ is glorious, Christ is exalted. We need a vision, we need this vision that Paul gives us. We need the vision of the revelation. What is revelation? It's an unveiling, right? It's, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ does that mean the, the revelation about Jesus Christ or is it the revelation concerning Jesus Christ? I think it's both it's both. It concerns him and it's 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 a revelation from him right It's from Jesus Christ it's about him the whole thing is pertaining to Jesus Christ but it reveals that book in particular reveals the glorious nature of Christ right how 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 impoverished we would be without that book of revelation to see that Christ is is seated on God's throne, right? That he is being worshiped in heaven right now by a group of, of celestial beings whose apparently whole job is just to worship God and his Christ all the time. <laughs> That's their job, right? Because Christ is worthy. So in this, in this text that we're, we're looking at in Ephesians 6, Paul is trying to elevate our view of everything, essentially. Elevate our view of this spiritual war and, and our place in it, Christ's place in it, which is overall, and certainly the role that Satan and his helpers, his minions, his demons have to play as well. We need to see the whole thing in the proper context and not just think, well, it's just about our day-to-day existence and trying to just eke by a, a, an existence. You know? There's more going on, isn't there, day-to-day than just going to work, having kids, raising kids, and so forth. There's much much big, bigger uh, portrait of things we need. Uh, we need to go into landscape mode, not just the portrait mode, landscape mode and see the big picture of things, right? So how are we strengthened by the Lord? Well, Paul, Paul tells us we're strengthened by putting on the armor that God supplies. I think that's why he, he says the armor of God. Um, it's, the, it's the armor that comes from God. In other words, again, it's not our strength. It's, it's a strength that's alien to us. God supplies this armor. There may be another reason why Paul says uh, that it's God's armor, and that is that uh, a little later on in this passage, farther down, he talks about um, you know, a belt and a, 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 you know, a, a sword, and talks about all these things that we're supposed to have, and a breast, breastplate, breastpiece of righteousness. These are drawn from certain Old Testament passages from Isaiah, and guess who's wearing the armor in those passages? God. <laughs> God is wearing the armor, um, this is God's armor and Christ's armor. So it's, there may be a, a kind of a two-pronged thing here. The armor comes from God because it is his armor. And there may be a, a union with Christ thing going on here that as we're united with Christ, we're in union with him, we have his armor, so to speak, right? We're under his, his wings, his protection. Um, I don't know for sure, but I think that's probably likely. We're strengthened by putting on this armor that comes from God. Um, and what is armor used for? Well, duh, it's used for battle, right? Which implies that we're in a battle. <laughs> we're in a battle, for sure. Um, and I've told this, not story, it's not a story, but I've told people this often because it just sticks with me, but there's a little essay in, um, in, uh, the Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory is a collection of different essays. And I always forget the title of the essay. I should probably look it up. it takes like five seconds to go look up the title. I can never remember it, and I never look it up. I don't remember to look it up. But it's a little essay in there where someone had written to C.S. Lewis asking, um, in light of World War II, why should we come and study with you, you know, Renaissance literature and so forth, you know, Middle Ages stuff. Why, why, why should we, Elizabethan literature, why should we study this? What's the point? We have a war raging, people are dying, right? And Lewis's response is, I think, great. His, his response is essentially, well, yeah, there is a war raging, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a major war, it's a world war, but there's the much broader, more significant war going on every day between the powers of darkness and God and his Christ and his people, right? And we don't, you know, we don't set our lives to the side and, well, we're just going to, you know, kind of hunker down and just, I don't know, just study the, study the Bible only and we're not going to do anything else. No, we, life goes on and we live out our Christian existence in the, in the midst of war, right? That spiritual battle is raging every day. There's not a day, there's not a moment where the battle is not raging, <laughs> you know? We convince ourselves that that's the case, that there are periods where, well, Satan's just not at work, but no, he's at work. The, part, the, the thing we need to be concerned about is when we don't see Satan at work because that's when he's being more crafty, more sneaky. All right? Uh, he's, he's good at this. He's a deceiver. So, point being, we're in this battle, and we need armor for the battle every single day, and it's not a metaphorical battle. It's a literal battle. Um, I think Revelation, again, gives us some insight into that to some extent. Paul uses battle terminology elsewhere. One place in particular I'll, I'll quote from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, though, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So that's martial terminology, right? Military terminology of warfare, of taking not in this not in this sense things captive, but thoughts captive. Uh, this is, this is military terminology, right? But Paul reminds us, this is not a fleshly battle. This is, this is not a flesh and blood thing. You know, we're not involved in warring, literally, certainly against other people. Um, we war, in this case, in, in, in Paul's text in 2 Corinthians, we war against arguments. Because what is one of Satan's main modes of attack? Arguments. Things that go into our mind that aren't true, right? That's one of his main schemes. We're going to talk about his schemes more in just a second, but one of his main schemes is, is the battle that goes on in our minds every day, right, where we doubt and we are discouraged and we are tempted to outright sin, follow our passions, etc. Um, the battlefield is in the mind. Um, I don't recommend Joyce Meyer, but I do like that book title that she has, The Battlefield of the Mind. That's a great title. Wish somebody more solid would have written it. Um, but, nonetheless, I digress. Um, so, Paul takes us, in, in back to Ephesians 6, <clears throat> Paul take, takes us even closer to the nature of our enemy. It's not just arguments. You know, it's, it's one thing to say, well, we, the, the, the military language is just, just applied to arguments. We tear down arguments, right? That's, that's all that's to it. No, he says our battle is actually not against flesh and blood, but against beings who are not flesh and blood, right? Rulers, authorities, world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. These are beings we're up against, which is embarrassing, right? In the world's perspective, what are you talking about? You believe in in devils, and you believe in angels and all this stuff? Yes, (laughs) we believe in devils, and we believe in angels, and we believe in God, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. Yes, this is what Christians have always believed. This is not just Paul getting creative and talking about, you know, I don't know, talking about arguments or, or ideas as if they are beings, some commentators go that direction. And I just say, they just don't understand Paul. They just don't understand the first century. They don't understand Judaism. They don't understand anything about the world of the first century, which is thoroughly supernatural. This is not embarrassing in the first century. They get it. (laughs) Actually, there's a lot of evidence that in Ephesus, there was tons of a practice of magic arts and putting curses on people and all these things, which is probably why, why Paul invokes so much language pertaining to the heavenlies and the spiritual beings and forces that are in opposition to God and his Christ and his people um, because they really are there. So Paul says, put on the full armor of God. It's it's interesting. Full armor, we have, you know, as a translation, two words. It's one word in the Greek. And um, I don't know if you know the word panoply, but it's an English word. It comes from this Greek word that's used here. Uh, And basically, uh, the word for a weapon in Greek is hoplon, and that's one weapon. This is pan-hoplon, which is all the weapons, right? So it's, it's a, the idea is um, that at the time in the first century, um, if you were a soldier going into battle, you put on certain gear, right? And Paul is saying, this is the whole thing. It's, it's the whole kit and caboodle. You're not just taking up one weapon. You put on everything. You put on the whole armor, the full armor, the panoply. You put it all on. Why would he say that? He could have just said, pick up a weapon. I think it's probably significant. He uses this word to capture the sense that we need all, these, all, these, all this armor because the battle is so severe, because our opponent and opponents are so diabolical, right? They're so devious. They're so powerful. You need this armor. You need to put it on. It comes from God. Put it on. Um, the full armor of God um, so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So how are we strengthened? We're strengthened by putting on armor, and the armor is used to protect us, help us to stand, but there's an offensive component as well, because Paul does mention a sword, right? Uh, Swords are not just merely defensive weapons. Um, So I think he has both offense and defense in, in view when he says put on this armor. But it's interesting, though, that he doesn't say put on the armor, and then go fight Satan. Does he say that? No, he says stand, which I think implies that you don't need to go win this war. The war's won, right? The war's won. You don't need to go win the war for Christ, right? Christ has won. Christ is the victor. You know? I mean, there, there are all these theories of the atonement. I hate that terminology, but, but one of the theories of the atonement, so-called, is Christus Victor. Christ is victor. That is part of the atonement, right? It's not the only or even the main part of the atonement. I think, you know, penal substitution is the, the core and the heart of the atonement, but it's certainly part of what Christ is doing when he dies on the cross and is, is raised from the dead. He ascends to the right hand, but that ascension language is ascending, as we already read, over the powers, Right? He's ascended above these, these powers, these rulers, these authorities who are real beings who oppose him. He's in, he's in ascendancy over them, and he's seated in a place that shows that he has put them underfoot, ultimately, right? Now, does the battle rage still? Yes, it rages. It, it goes on, but it doesn't go on as a war the you know, we're not sure who's gonna win here. Christ has won. The reason, the reason Satan and his demons are so angry is because, is because Christ has won, right? They rage because of Christ's victory. We talked about that, this with the youth, uh, I guess, Friday night, yeah. We talked about how Revelation 12 says that, woe to the earth, because Satan has been cast down to you, and he's full of rage or fury. Why? Because he knows he has just a short time. His time is short. That's all in light of the, of the, of the cross, of the victory that Christ accomplished at the cross. Satan is enraged. Therefore, we need armor. Therefore, we need to avail ourselves of what, what God has provided for us. Put on this armor, this panoply. Satan and demons, as we call them, is not only powerful, but he's intelligent because you don't scheme if you're not intelligent, right? Scheme, scheming implies intelligence and resourceful he has schemes that we must not be ignorant of lest we fall into his, his traps, right? Uh, the battle against these schemes is, is most often, as I said, going to be waged in our minds. Paul writes about, he uses this same word of schemings, of, of schemes, as he says, you know, we, shouldn't be, we should realize that Satan is, uh, has schemes and we're going to have to stand against his schemes. He uses the same word schemes one other place, And that's in Ephesians. In this verse, Ephesians 4.14, he says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Same word. It's the word where we get, uh, it's the Greek word where we get our English word methods, right? So Satan has his methods. He has his approaches, right? I mean, think about it. If If you have a way of doing things. You know, you don't start, start over from scratch every time, right? If something works. I've been working on my fence. I was working on it yesterday, and I, I had to kind of tinker a little bit for a while and figure out, okay, what's the best method? But once I got my method, I didn't go out there and every single time I worked on the fence do something different, you know? That would be dumb. Why? Because I've got a method. It works. Satan has methods, <laughs> and they work, right? Um, if, if they didn't work, Satan would, wouldn't be still around doing his thing, and and uh, being successful oftentimes, right? Satan is, is tricky. And this passage in Ephesians 4 uh, kind of links, you know, we see a link here between trickery of men and trickery of Satan, reminding us that Satan, unfortunately, often comes to work through men, right? Right? men who are false teachers. Um, this is one of the main things we see in the, in the New Testament when Paul's writing a letter. You know, he's encouraging the saints and so forth, but he's also having to warn them against false teachers because this is Satan at work, right? Satan is often at work in, in, in this is one of his main schemes through, through uh, falsehoods by way of people who claim to be hearing from God, rightly representing God, saying things that are supposedly biblical, but actually what they're doing is twisting, right? Twisting, and this is Satan's MO. He takes something and he twists it, right? You'd think we would learned the lesson by now, but the problem is he's good at it. He's had a lot of practice, he's resourceful, and so forth. So what are, what are some of Satan's schemes that we should be aware of? I just made a list of certain, certain things that came to mind. Of course, there are lots more, I'm sure, but one of them, and this is in no particular order, one of them is doubt, right? Doubt is a real thing. I think most Christians, I wouldn't say all, because probably are some Christians who maybe, I don't know, have the gift of faith and they don't doubt. That's probably a thing, right? I mean, I know the gift of faith is a thing, but I'm saying maybe that implies those people never doubt. But I've had doubts. Um, I've had doubts recently. That's just how, how life is as a Christian. Where do those doubts come from? Well, they don't come from God. God wants me to have faith. He doesn't want me to be shaky or doubting him. It comes from Satan, right? Satan casts a little, you know, a little, little question in the mind. You read something you've read a hundred times before, and then something strikes you as like, "Oh, that's weird." You know, I don't really know what to do with that. I never really noticed that. Uh, I'm talking about in the scriptures, you know, or or whatever, a n- number of things. Something really hard comes into your life, something that shakes you, and you you think, "How could God be good? This? How would God allow this to happen?" Or maybe not to you, to someone else. Um, Obviously, this is a huge scheme of Satan, and just one little piece of advice. Because this is what I've learned: when Satan does that to you, let's say it's some, some one little thing. It's usually one thing that's just sticking. You know, it's like a rock in your shoe. You just ah, can't get it. Can't move my foot the right way to get that, get comfortable. You know, um, remember. <laughs> That Satan will put the, put the microscope you know, on that one little thing to the exclusion of everything else. He wants you to have a myopic focus and, and to think, if I don't sort this out, you know maybe it's some apologetic issue or whatever it is, or you're, just, you're doubting the goodness of God for whatever reason. If I don't get this sorted out, you 100 know, percent or to my satisfaction, I can't believe anything else, that's the scheme of Satan. What, what we should be doing is entertaining the whole council of God, is, is getting with other believers and saying, "You know what? I'm doubting the Lord for this or that reason, help me out. You know, tell me what I need to know here, you know. Um, Remind me of things I already know. Because Satan wants to push those things out into the periphery, right? He wants you to see only this one thing and then push everything else you out, you really do know to be true, he pushes that out of sight. And we need to be pulling that back in. Again, coming before the Lord and saying, hey, I may not have an answer to this one thing, but look at all the other stuff I know. I have every reason to trust you, Lord, you know. Not just not just stuff in the scriptures, but personal things as well that the Lord has done in your life, you know? Everybody who knows the Lord has a, has a track record with the Lord of, of praying to him, having him do things in your life, um, you know, just walking with the Lord. So that's just one, doubt, discouragement, very similar to doubt, obviously, different wrinkle there, but discouragement is one. I won't pontificate on each of these, but I'm just list a few. Temptation to various lusts and passions, um, obviously that's, uh, that can be discouraging. When you think, man, I've got, this, I've got this sin, this particular sin really whipped, you know? You think you've arrived. And Peter reminds us, ooh, take, <laughs> you better be careful, right? You need to take heed lest you fall. You know, pride, pride is what comes before a fall. So um, Satan can come in with those lusts and passions that are, you know, a temptation, temptation, real temptations for us. And just remember, temptation is not sin. To feel tempted, to be tempted, not sin. It's the falling into temptation that's the sin. It's the choice to, to, to follow that temptation is the sin. Sowing discontentment. Ooh, that's a big one, right? Close to discouragement, but not exactly. Discontentment. So you start to usually just look at yourself too much, really, and compare yourself to, to others. Um, oh, this person has something I don't have, or this person is, you know, whether it's a thing that someone has, an object or a status or an ability, whatever it is. Uh, you know, you, you start become, to become discontent, and you grumble and you complain. That's satanic. Grumbling and complaining is satanic, right? I mean, Paul tells us not to grumble and complain. The Old Testament, I mean, Israel, good gracious, should be the, the number one lesson for not grumbling and complaining, right? God sends venomous serpents among them because of their grumbling and complaining. It's not a good thing. It's the scheme of Satan. <coughs> Fostering Bitterness toward one another. And I say fostering bitterness because bitterness doesn't just happen, okay? Um, it's something you foster because if, if someone rubs you wrong, someone rubs you wrong. It's what are you gonna do with it then, right? You have to make it right with that person. You should do it as soon as possible. <laughs> you have to get before the Lord and you know get your heart right with the Lord. But bitterness is something where you've, you put the fertilizer on it, right? you don't you don't go to that person you don't make it right and and it becomes this this monster this monstrosity something that would have been easy to nip in the bud at the start you didn't you didn't uproot it you know hebrews talks about a root of bitterness you got to uproot that thing right you can't let it grow in your garden if i if i see some some weed growing in the you know looking at my my back window at home i could just stand there and watch it grow and become some ungodly looking thing in the backyard or i could just pull it up right and you know, it's some of these some of these weeds are pretty tough. When you start to pull them up, they get big, right? Um, that's how it is with bitterness. Don't don't do that, brothers and sisters. We are, you know, we're members of one another. How can we how can we be bitter toward one another? It's it's satanic. Isolation. Ooh, that's a big one, right? So isolation. Satan does not want us to be with other believers. He wants us by ourselves. Um, it's <clears throat> it's a scheme. Lots could be said about that. False teaching I mentioned. Another major one in our, in our context particularly is comfort and ease and laziness, right? Um, becoming passive, becoming docile, becoming uh, inert, whatever words you want to use, just becoming ineffective. Um, we live in, very obvious to say this, but I'll say it anyways, we live in an age of affluence, a country of affluence and opulence and you know, we have what we need. We have most. We have all. Most of us have all of what we need, and if not all of what we want, probably most of what we want. Let's be honest, right? And it's so easy to lean on our our status and our comfort and our things, and not lean on the Lord, and to make the focus keeping ourselves comfortable and at ease, um, and and we become lazy. We become fat, right? Um, Osgoodness has a has a book I read it oh gosh like 25 years ago called um, Fat, uh, Fit Bodies Fat Minds and that's a great title you know it's a critique of our culture you know it's like that's where we are you know we want to we want to um, keep our exterior self our 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 outer man as Paul would say fit but what about our inner man right what about our minds what about our our souls so to speak you know are we are we equally not, not even equally. Are we putting the main attention on that aspect of things and everything else is kind of secondary? Another one focus on the here and now, not eternity. So Satan wants us, this is a scheme, to, to focus on what's going on right in front of us, right? Your, your current status, your current situation, your current circumstance um, to the exclusion of eternity, right? How can you, how can you, how can a person myself included, suffer well without a view toward eternity. You can't. You can't, right? There are believers right now suffering, you know, horribly, um, physically and otherwise, who will get no relief or very little until Christ comes back, right? How can that person hold up under that? How can that person stand, to use Paul's language here, against that kind of onslaught? Well, only if you have an eternal perspective on things, right? You realize that anything that comes our way now is, what does Paul say? Light and momentary in comparison. It's a comparison, right? He doesn't just say it is light and momentary, period. He says it's light and momentary in comparison to the eternal weight of glory, right? It's a comparison thing. So if we don't know what we're comparing our lives to now, which is eternity, we're going to have a miscalculation about our lives. We're gonna live our lives you know, wrongly, in a wrong-headed manner. We're not going to have the right understanding about how to process what goes on in the day-to-day. So focusing on the here and now is, is, is a scheme of Satan. He removes that view of eternity, uh, of Christ seated at the right hand of God, and actually that, that, you know, uh, that, that there's an end point to this present evil age. It has a termination point. I find myself not thinking about the return of Christ nearly as much as I should, not even close to it. And that's to, that's to my shame. But we should be. We should be realizing that Christ, not only realizing, but as, as the scriptures say, being eager, eagerly awaiting, desiring Christ to come and wrap things up, right? Um, to put everything right. Two more I have listed here. Um, focus on the self or an inward focus. I've already kind of mentioned that a lot, actually, but just as a general strategy, you know, to, to get, get you focused on yourself. And... Exclude God, exclude Christ, exclude you know, other people. Jesus says you have to, if you're gonna be a follower, you have to hate your life. That's not my, that's not, those aren't my words. That's Jesus. He says, you have to hate your life. What does he mean? He means you have to make yourself a servant of all, right? You have to put yourself at well, the lowest on the totem pole. You have to put Christ as first in your heart, right? You have to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Put him, put him up. When we say Lord, we mean master, you know? Maybe it'd be helpful to, to say, to pray that way sometimes and, and, and stop saying Lord all the time and say master because that's what it means. It means he's the one in charge, right? He's the Lord. Um, and one more I'll mention uh, as far as the scheme and then we'll have some more positive things to say here, but sowing discord and division. So, um, oh man. Yeah, uh, kind of like the bitterness thing, but again, just Satan loves to divide. He's, he is, he can, he loves the divide and conquer strategy, right? So again, when it comes to bitterness, we can't let that, that fester and foster that, that root of, of bitterness, but we have to realize that he's going to come and he's going to actively divide and we have to hold our tongues, brothers and sisters, um, because all of us are tempted to gossip. All of, our, all of us are tempted to see and observe the flaws in others, and not only see them, but to harp on them and to want to tell others about those faults, and it's just evil. Um, I thought about a text in Second Corinthians 11, uh, uh, verses 8 through 11. You probably remember in First Corinthians, there's a man who has committed a horrible, Sin of sexual immorality i 'll not list that or specify that right now for the sake of the children because it 's really terrible, but seemingly in second corinthians this this man has has repented, and so what does paul what does Paul tell um, the believers in corinth he says second corinthians eleven eight wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him, so he 's repented now reaffirm your love for him, for to this end also, also I wrote so that I might first put you to the test, whether you are, you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. That's it's a different word in the Greek for schemes here. It's not the same word used in Ephesians. It's actually just thoughts, really. But if Satan's thinking, it's not a good thought. He's not thinking good things. He's not planning good things for you. He's not setting up a birthday party for you. I'm sorry. He's plotting evil <laughs> against you, right? So we're not ignorant of his schemes. Why does he say that? I think his point is that there's a rift here between this, this man who really has done evil, he's done evil, and that he caused the rift by his evil between, between himself and the, and the believers, the church in Corinth. But this man has repented. Therefore, what you need to do now, it's on you now that he's repented to Reaffirm your love for him. And he says, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. What is he getting at? I think he's getting at the fact that if you, if you don't reconcile with this brother, then you're falling into the trap of Satan because Satan doesn't want you reconciled with this brother, right? Satan wants that discord there. He wants that division. He wants there to be um, a, a lack of reconciliation. So these are just real things that Satan does day in and day out, you know. Um, and again, they're Lots of others that could be mentioned, and we could talk about these a long time. But coming back to Paul's text here, as far as um, Ephesians 6 is concerned, he says he wants us to stand against all these schemes, right? He wants us to stand against all these schemes and much more, knowing that our enemy is great, that he rages against God, rages against his Christ, and uh, rages against the church. We don't struggle against flesh and blood, but we have every resource at our right hand, so to speak, which is this armor. The, um, I'm running a little low on time here, so I'm not gonna get into <laughs> specifying all the, all the armor, but what I want to do is briefly just touch on a couple things about this this armor. One is, he says that we need to take up this armor so that we can resist in the evil day, okay? Um, what is this evil day? Well, there's essentially three options. I'm not entirely sure which to take out of two, but. here here they are. Number one, a specific day at the end of time just prior to Christ's coming. Some people think it's like a, a, you know, final evil day or time period right before the end. Eh, possible, but Paul seems to put everything in the present here. I don't think that's likely. Second, much more likely is a time period or era of evil. This lines up with a couple things Paul says. Even in Ephesians, Paul says in Ephesians 5, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Well, what does he mean? I think he means pretty much what he means in, uh, when, when he says, uh, pretty much what he means in Galatians when he says that we live in, an, in an, a present evil age, that this, this time period is an age of evil because Christ is reigning, yes, but Satan is raging, right? And he's raging against the church. Um, we've already said I've already said a lot about that. Again, much more could be said, but it's an evil age. We have to realize that. So I think that's that's certainly quite possible. The third option, which I'm I think is likely, but I would take the previous one or this one as, as you know the two most the two strongest possibilities, is that this is a specific time of intense testing. So I think we all, as Christians, have experienced this. You know, you're you're rocking along, you're feeling pretty good, you're not really feel like you've fallen majorly into sin for a long time, and then bam, the time of testing comes, maybe out of nowhere, right? It's an evil day. It's an evil time. Um, I think that this argument, what it has going in its favor is that he says an evil day, singular. It's not the days are evil, as he says in Ephesians 5. This is an evil day. A A specific day, a particular evil, and that particular evil requires a particular readiness for it, right? So... If you're going to come against an army, <laughs> I've been listening to some, some podcasts and stuff on World, World War II, and um, yesterday in one of the podcasts, one of the guys was saying, you'd be surprised to think this, but actually, as far as training goes, some people back in World War I and World War II thought that you didn't really need to, to train super hard before you went into battle because you would maybe wear out your soldiers. They wouldn't fight as well if you kind of you know, did too much. And then they realize, well, that's a terrible idea. We, we need to, you need to prepare for the day of battle by training up to the, you know, the maximum training you can do so that you train hard, fight easy. That was the, the term or the phrase that was mentioned. And that's what Paul's getting at here. We train hard, fight easy, so to speak. You know, not that it's ever easy, per se, but it's easier, right? right? And the training is readiness. Um, what does this readiness entail? Putting on the armor. I'm just gonna briefly talk <clears throat> say a little bit about this armor because we're out of time pretty much. First of all, he says to stand therefore having girded your loins. That's <laughs> that's literally what it says in the Greek. Girded your loins or your waist. Loins can also mean waist with truth. So this idea is that some some translations I think like ESV says belt, belt of truth. That's fine. I mean it it can be referring to a belt the word, but I think that well, the word loins is there, and I think what it's drawing from is this Semitic expression of getting prepared. You know, like you, you read in, um, in the Old Testament where Elijah, I think it was Elijah, had to run somewhere really fast, and he, he girds his loins. In other words, you had this long robe you wear, and you're not gonna go outside and do a bunch of hard work, certainly not run with it hanging down around your feet. You pull it up, and you tie a rope or belt or whatever they had around your waist so that it doesn't fall down. It's a, it's a statement of preparation, that's, that's what he's talking about here. Girding your loins, or your waist, with truth. What does he mean? Why is he talking about truth? Well, Paul talks about truth quite a bit in Ephesians. He says the gospel is the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. He says truth is in Jesus, that we are to um, reflect God in God his likeness by, or he says, put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, uh, which has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, Therefore laying aside falsehood, speak truth to one another, or speak truth one of you, I'm sorry, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And then lastly, leading up to this text in Ephesians 6, he says, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So why does he mention truth here? I think he's capturing all of the above. We should be people of truth, people who believe the gospel, embrace the gospel as the message of truth, right? It's, it's the it's the true understanding of, of existence and reality, right? That's the gospel, the good news. Um, we have to embrace that good news as the truth. And we have to be people of truth in all of our speech. We don't lie to one another, all of our dealings. We don't cheat one, one another, or, you know, we're not dishonest in our dealings with one another. We're people of truth. It's quite the opposite to Satan. Satan is a liar. He's a murderer from the beginning. beginning. He's a liar. He's the father of lies, you know, he's deceptive, so forth. This is why he mentions truth up front, I believe, because he, he front loads truth because, again, we have to have something positive in our mind if we're going, and, and, and positive moral character if we're going to come up against Satan, because Satan's going to assail you with lies, and he's going to assail you with accusation. Ooh, you, you told that lie the other day, Satan's gonna tell you. You fibbed a little bit, right? Well, if you're a people of truth and you don't lie to one another or you know lie to anybody, then Satan has nothing that can stick, right? So truth, and again, false teaching, of course, falls into that too. You don't have to know all the reasons why false teaching is wrong, but you do have to know what's right, yeah? You have to know the scriptures. If you know the scriptures, you'll automatically know that Islam, Baha'i, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, Zoroastrianism, whatever it is, is all a bunch of garbage because you know what's true. Paul's saying, look at the truth. Keep your eyes fixed on the truth. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the truth. Um, then he says this breastplate of righteousness. Okay, this could be taken a couple ways. Is he talking about the alien righteousness that we get through faith? Possibly. I don't think so. I think he's talking about a righteous character, a quality of righteousness, that we walk before the Lord doing what's right. And again, that righteousness protects us from Satan, because he's going to latch onto us, you know, if we're mired in sin, mired in doing what's wrong. That's going to attract his attention. He's going to play, that's his, that's his playground, right? Uh, moving through just for the sake of time. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So interesting word here. It's just uh, sandaling your feet is basically what it says. Sandaling your feet with preparation. So I uh, thought about Red Bull. Red Bull gives you wings. The gospel gives you feet. Cheesy, right? But the point is, if you if you are a Christian, then you have experienced the gospel. Reconciliation, peace that comes... Vertically, with you and God, peace that's horizontal with you and other people. Therefore, how can you not but tell others this, right? You have, you have an equip, uh you've been equipped by the gospel to go out and proclaim the gospel to others and bring this message of reconciliation or peace um, to everyone. In addition to all, or I think better, in all circumstances, in Greek it just says all, in all. Um, I think it means in all times or all circumstances. Take up the shield of faith, with which you can, uh, you will be able to extinguish all the fiery or flaming arrows of the evil one. Um, There are two words he could have used here for shield. One is a little small shield, you know, like you're holding a sword, you're holding a shield. That's not the one he uses here. He uses a word that's actually related to the word, etymologically related to the word door in Greek, because this shield was like as big as a door. (laughs) Uh, It was a shield that was about four feet tall, or four and a half feet tall, and about two and a half feet wide, and it curved like this, if you've ever seen any, you know, Greek battle movies or pictures or whatever, when they're all lined up in a row, like the, the phalanx, you know, and they're, you, all you see is this wall of shields. That's what he's talking about. That's the shield. Sometimes they would, they would put water on the shield. I guess it has like leather, leather or something that would absorb water on the front because of course you have the volley of arrows coming over and sometimes they would light them on fire. They could stick into the shield and extinguish them. Um, that's what Paul is drawing from, from when he talks about a shield of faith. What is faith? Faith is one of those Bible words that people think is, is uh, just in the Bible, but it just means trust, right? It means belief. It's a word we use all the time. Um, people don't seem to understand that. A lot of times, even Christians, faith is just this magical thing that you believe God apart from evidence or without any good reason or in spite of the evidence or something like that. No, faith is just trusting in God believing what he says, taking him at his word, and aligning yourself with God. That's what faith is, right? Um, How does faith protect us from the evil one? Well, pretty obviously. I mean, uh, Satan's going to come trying, as he did from the beginning in the garden, with casting aspersions on God, tearing God down piece by piece in our minds. And if we've determined that we're going to put our faith in God, we're going to Remember his mercies toward us. We're going to remember his word. We're going to set all these things before us. We extinguish those fiery arrows that come at us from Satan. Two more weapons. We'll wrap it up, or pieces of armor. Helmet of salvation. Again, in Isaiah, this is the helmet that God wears. Um, and uh, of course, salvation, what is it? Well, it's deliverance, right? What have we been delivered from? We've been delivered from sin. Well, what does that mean? means that God is against us because of our sin, right? That we have to be rescued from that wrath that's against us. And that's what Christ has done for us. So I think Paul is saying we need to reflect on this great salvation. We need to, um, we need to have that become the furniture of our thinking where we realize that God has accomplished this full and final salvation for us in Christ. And what can man do to us? What can Satan do to us? God has already won the day. We're more than conquerors in Christ. Sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Uh, I know a lot of times when people preach through this, they want to hold up a Bible and shake it, and this is the Word of God, and that's true. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. I think he's talking about the message of the gospel is the Word of God. Um, The Word of God is the message of of truth, uh, which is the gospel, um, and the sword of the Spirit, because this is the spirit is operative through the word, Hebrews, right? It pierces between flesh and marrow, and I can't remember the exact, all the words there, I don't have that one memorized, but um, divides between soul and marrow and so forth. That this word of God, uh, this specific message of the gospel, as it becomes part of our thinking, cuts through all the error and all the nonsense that Satan throws at us, right? Lastly, then we're done. Paul talks about prayer and petition at the end here. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. So how do we, how do we put on this armor? Just, I mean, you know, this is, this is obviously metaphorical. Paul doesn't mean you're supposed to go make some armor and put it on and think you're good. You know, Satan's not gonna be able to harm you. No, these are qualities, right? These are qualities and mindsets that Paul wants us to, to have. Um, and this comes through turning away from ourselves and turning to to God in Christ and praying. That's why Paul ends in prayer saying, you need to pray that God will give you these things. Paul says that he's praying for them that they would have a revelation from God about who Christ is, right? It's not just something on a page that you read. It's not just knowledge. It's revelation in the knowledge of him, okay? Okay. It's something that God and only God can impart to a human being. See, I can read all kinds of commentaries written by scholars who, who are great scholars and they have great things about, to say about the Greek text but they don't know the Lord, haven't had a revelation in the knowledge of him, right? You can get the text right and get God wrong because you don't know him, right? What a danger, right? So we need to be tapping into these resources through prayer, asking God to be at work in all these ways, giving us faith, righteousness in our lives, truth as, as far as truthful dealings and truthful, truthful speech, and latching on to the gospel, which is the message of the truth, calling to mind the great salvation that he's accomplished, and uh, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that God is—notice the Trinitarian shape of, of all of this, that there's God and Christ and the Spirit all at work for our benefit, right, and uh, for our protection from these evil demonic demonic forces. So, um, skipped over some I wanted to say, went longer than I wanted to say, and wanted to talk. But hey, there you go. So uh, we'll pray and we'll be done. Lord, um, thank you again for this this great word and reminder that we are not uh, alone in this world. Lord, you you are with us. Um, Lord, we have one another. We have um, certainly myriads of angels who are sent out to serve the elect for the sake of the elect, Lord, and uh, other ministering spirits. We're not alone, Lord, and we have this armor that you've provided for us to take up. And Lord, we pray that we would take it up, um, that we would uh, realize we're in a battle and certainly take this seriously. Uh, Lord, we don't want to walk around feeling depressed or defeated because we are not, Lord. Um, You are the conquering king. You rule over all. Um, Don't let us be triumphalistic to where we think we don't need to be alert or take... Uh, precautions, but Lord, also don't let us ultimately uh, just fall into that, I don't know, just uh, attitude of defeat, just being defeated, because we aren't um, in Christ. And so, Lord, uh, be at work in us, we pray. Uh, Thank you for this truth, and I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.